Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, New York City's COVID positive rates continue to climb as the Thanksgiving Thanksgiving holiday approaches. New York mourns the death of David Dinkins, its first black mayor. Democrats claim they have won a supermajority in New York State Senate, which could alter the balance of power in Albany starting in 2021. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our latest news at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. We were preempted these past two Tuesdays by Pacifica Fundraisers, but it's great to be back with you today. We have some fantastic guests lined up for a little later in the show, but first, some headlines. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues to explode across the country, New York's test positivity rate also continues to climb. Mayor Bill de Blasio reported this morning that New York City hit 3.06% on Monday. Over the summer, positive rates tumbled below 1%. Meanwhile, the New York City area's three major airports are, are experiencing their busiest days this week since March, even as de Blasio and Governor Andrew Cuomo are encouraging New Yorkers not to travel for Thanksgiving, but instead enjoy the holiday at home. More than 258,000 Americans have been killed by the coronavirus, including more than 34,000 New Yorkers. Sean Petty, a Bronx-based public hospital nurse and member of the executive board of the New York State Nurses Association, says New York City is not adequately prepared for the coming second wave of the pandemic. We're more prepared with PPE, we're more prepared with hospital capacity, but we're not prepared enough, and we could have been uh, devoting billions uh, towards public sector, public health infrastructure, um, instead of um, increasing cuts in health care, which is what Governor Cuomo has done in the last six months. We will talk more with Petty during the second half of the show. 300,000 New York City public school students who had been receiving at least some in-class instruction returned Monday to an all-virtual classroom following last week's latest round of school closings due to the virus. Many teachers and parents remain confused and upset about the school openings and closings as they have unfolded. This is ESL teacher Aixa Rodriguez, a member of the Movement of Rank-and-File Educators and Bronx Educators United for Justice. Uh, so we feel like, you know, whiplash. We, we're getting this energy back, and we had said from the beginning, please be consistent. We want to have robust remote learning, and we want to do it well. So let's be remote and safe till January, and now we're opening, closing, opening, closing. It's like yo-yos. Nobody can plan their life in child care and actual good quality instruction in this way. And we, this is very disrespectful, and it's disruptive to the family life. We'll hear more from Aixa Rodriguez after the headlines. New Yorkers are mourning the death of David Dinkins, the first and only black mayor in the history of New York City. Dinkins, 93, passed away last night in his Upper East Side apartment, apparently of natural causes. Dinkins was elected in 1989 at the head of a progressive multiracial coalition and spoke often of what he called the city's gorgeous mosaic of peoples. During his time in office, Dinkins grappled with high crime rates, a tense racial atmosphere, and unrelenting opposition from the city's police unions. He narrowly lost his 1993 bid for re-election to conservative prosecutor Rudy Giuliani. 
Mayor de Blasio got his start in city politics as a junior staffer in the Dinkins administration, and he remembered his old boss fondly on Tuesday. Dinkins believed that we could be better. He believed we could overcome our divisions. He showed us what it was like to be a gentleman, to be a kind person, no matter what was thrown at him, and a lot was thrown at him. And he always tried to answer the hate with love. Uh, It was remarkable serving with him in this building. In, In state politics on Monday, State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cosens announced the Democrats have won enough seats this cycle to control a supermajority for the first time since 1846. You know, when I look back in 2019, we began our session with 39. And in 2020, we began our session with 40. And... uh, I'm announcing that in 2021, we will begin our session with a historic supermajority. The Democrats already control a supermajority in the state assembly and for the first time have the power to pass laws without Governor Andrew Cuomo being able to veto them. In our second segment, we will talk with State Senator Jessica Ramos of Queens, a rising star in Albany who has been calling for higher taxes on the rich to address the budget crisis caused by the pandemic. And finally, Governor Cuomo may see his power in Albany clipped when the legislature returns in January, but he can find some solace in winning his first Emmy Award, which was awarded Monday. The award uh, was awarded for his uh, daily press conferences he presided over last spring as New York experienced more COVID fatalities than any other state in the union, including thousands of elderly nursing home patients who perished after Cuomo approved a measure requiring nursing homes to take COVID-positive patients sent from hospitals. We're not sure whether to laugh or cry, but here are Billy Joel, Spike Lee, and Ben Stiller respectively lauding the governor for his leadership. In the midst of this storm, Andrew Cuomo became the nation's governor. People across the country tuned into his press conferences every day. Daily, I was watching his press conferences, informing us, telling us what to do. And uh, he also said that, uh, you know, now that you're the love gov, uh, you've kind of transcended politics and now you're just part of really more, you know, you're more of like a national sex symbol. He says you'll probably get more dates than votes. That's him saying that, not me. We'll be back with more after this short break. You should have been downtown. The people are rising. We thought it was a lockdown. They opened the fire. Them bullets was flying. Who said it was a lockdown? Goddamn lie. Oh my, time heals all, but you out of time now. Judge gotta watch us from the clock tower. Little tear gas cleared the whole place out. I'll be back with the hazmat for the next round. We was trying to protest and the fires broke out. Look out for the secret agents, they be planted in the crowd. Set a civil unrest, but you sleep so sound like you don't hear the screams when we catching beat down. Staying quiet when the opinions coming from a place of privilege. Sicker than the COVID, how they did them on the ground. Speaking of the COVID, is it still going around? Oh, won't you tell me about the looting? What's that really all about? Cause they throw away black lives. 
lives like paper towels plus unemployment rate. What? 40 million now, killed a man in broad day. Might never see a trial. We just want to break chains like slaves in the South. Started in the North End, but we in the downtown. Riot cops try to block, now we got a showdown. Down. That was Lockdown by Anderson Pock. You're listening to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. We've hosted the Monday edition of the WBI Evening News for the past couple of years, and now we've moved to this new time slot. And it's great to be here with you this evening. Turning to our first segment, 300,000 New York City public school students who had been receiving at least some in-class instruction returned Monday to an all-virtual classroom following last week's latest round of school closings due to the coronavirus. Many teachers and parents remain confused and upset about the school openings and closings as as they've unfolded. Uh, Joining us this evening to help make sense of what's going on and and give us a a clearer picture of, of what it's been like to teach so far this fall in the public schools, we are joined by Aixa Rodriguez, a high school ESL teacher, also a member of the Movement of Rank-and-File Educators and Bronx Educators United for Justice. Aixa, welcome to the WB, welcome to the Independent News Hour. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. You bet. So, uh, first of all, uh, can you give us your reac- reaction to the uh, um, school closings that were announced uh, toward the end of last week and, and how they were handled? <laughs> Uh, it feels like I'm in a car with a bad driver who stomps on the brakes and, you, you know, throw, throw, throw forward to be, you know, shocked at the thing. It's it just constantly like you get one one idea of how the days and the weeks are supposed to go. And next thing you know, it stops. So we had wanted it to be remote so we could do it well and we could be safe. And they were like, no, no, no. Now, yes, no, but now, yes, it, it's ridiculous. So, I mean, a, a terrible, terrible situation. We should have one plan and stick to it instead of going up and down. And can you talk more about what it's been like to teach uh, these hybrid classes, uh, uh, having students, both some students in the class and others uh, online, as well as the challenge of teaching virtual classes and keeping your students engaged? Well, there's a, a lot of different things depending on the age. At high school and middle school level, you the kids are more independent. But when they're younger, you need a parent at home watching and supporting that the kid is engaged. Also, not every kid wants to turn on their camera. It's hard to keep them engaged. And, it, you know, people get tired of being on Zoom calls. Imagine you're a little kid staring at a screen the whole day. You know, another thing is that the very natural way that we get exercise walking around getting a drink of water, going to the bathroom, socializing. Some of that burns off some energy. We don't have that happening. It's very hard for kids to be seated in front of a laptop for hours, clicking through links, and that's supposed to be changing classes, right, going through, you know, link one for period one, et cetera, et cetera. It's really difficult. Um, Teachers are having to learn all types of new um, apps and programs, and everything is online, new curricula, everything happening simultaneously and the kids are having to learn along with us. It's not easy, especially when you're trying to tell a parent this who speaks different languages and help them navigate some, you know, something brand new to us. Imagine these parents 
having to juggle all of these different things and having kids at different age ranges in your home and right. trying to keep up with the curriculum of your youngest, your middle and your and your oldest. It's been a, it's been difficult. It's been a challenge. It, it sounds like and um yet you you uh, would still prefer that the the classes be done virtually for health reasons. Over death? Over death, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I don't trust that the DOE has done what it needs to do to keep us healthy. When we talk when it comes to health justice, the conditions that the teachers work in are the conditions that the students are learning in. So if we know that there's mold and asbestos and PCBs and broken chip paint and on a regular year and we know that things don't get clean regularly, why are we supposed to have faith that this is going to be safe? Right now, we don't have that faith. And because they didn't listen and they wanted to push, push, push to open, then close, push to open, it's always reactionary. It's never preventative. They don't seem to have their stuff together. And watching this Abbott and Costello thing going on, who's on first, the mayor's in control, the governor's in control, between Cuomo and de Blasio doesn't bring us that feeling of someone's in charge, we feel secure. It's the complete opposite. You know, I would still rather struggle through helping the kids go online and talk to me and break our groups on a Zoom than deal with the reality of of them possibly contaminating each other. These kids are coming from different parts of the city. You can't do geographical regions when you have kids who are commuting from one community into the other. You know, they came up with that high school lottery game of throwing the kids across the, the city yep. instead of developing community high schools. Now you got kids in Queens coming to schools in Manhattan. So, yeah, I would rather be remote. Okay. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's ironic because, uh, of course, uh, our uh, political leaders right now are encouraging people to uh, stay at home for Thanksgiving and, and, and not travel for the holiday. Yet uh, school students until recently were being um, encouraged to travel back and forth across the city. Uh, what One other thing about the condition of the schools, if you could speak to for a moment, uh, as the weather has grown colder, as fall uh, moves toward winter, what has it been like to teach in-person classes with open windows uh, because those open windows are the only source of uh, ventilation uh, in uh, older school buildings? Well, teachers like Gia Lee at the Earth School have been documenting the, the temperatures in their classroom, and it's below 50 and sometimes lower. And the kids are wrapped up, sometimes up against the heater. She's been tweeting about this for a while. A bunch of other teachers have been um, also tweeting about what, what it's like to have squirrels come through the window, the rain come through. I mean, this is ridiculous. This is coming to, to the head. We understand that we haven't been invested in for decades. Our buildings are falling apart and old. They are not up to par. They know it. They've been knowing this. And now you expect these kids to come some of them who live in shelters, some of them who live in apartments that the landlords are not giving key, and they have to come to school and be bundled up. I mean, to say a memo and emails from the union and the DOE to tell the kids to wear layers and sit in the room, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And a lot of the kids are, you know, not showing up, even though they signed up for Blended. They stay home and say things, oh, I forgot it was my A, B, A, B, C, D a day mm. or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's a real big joke. We've had to push and try to get kids to, to increase attendance. Most kids are remote and the vocal minority of parents who have been pushing for opening of schools do not speak for all of them. And people vote with their feet. 
So maybe some uh, independent journalists should stop going to the upper, you know, east side and maybe go into the hood and ask those parents why they're keeping their kids home. And then they will hear the truth. They don't have faith. They know the schools are falling apart. Their kid is freezing. They could be warm at home. You know what I'm saying? And the other thing is that inconsistent instruction. When you're going A, B, C, D all through the week, if you're two of the two, three kids in front of me in class, there's 25 online. Why would you want to be the three kids in the room? There's only two other kids there. Like, nobody's showing up. It doesn't make sense. It's not actually in live instruction because they they had no choice. They had to have teachers do both positions, the in-person and remote simultaneously because they didn't have the staffing. So it's not real. They're doing Zoom calls in the building of school on a laptop. And right. they could have been home We're, we're going to have to wrap it up in the next minute here. Uh, but one other thing I wanted to touch on, uh, as I mentioned at the start of the segment, you're a member of the Movement of Rank-and-File Educators, which is the left-wing social justice caucus of the teachers' union here in New York City. And while we hear a lot about teachers in relation to, you know, whether they're teaching in person or not, uh, I understand Moore has uh, also been working on other projects, including uh, advancing a Black Lives Matter uh, curriculum in in the schools. Uh, Real quickly, can you uh, summarize uh, what's happened with that? So members of BLM at schools um, in New York City include members of Moore. Members of Moore have put a resolution up for the past three years in the UFT Delegate Assembly for support for our curriculum projects, the things that we've been doing with BLM in schools, um, following the 13 principles. And we, this year, published two books, uh, a coloring slash workbook, and um, through Lee and Lowe, Karen and Lelenia are the authors, and uh, Denisha Jones has um, co-wrote um, a book on Black Lives Matter in schools that's also coming out. Um, and we finally, after three years of putting that resolution, 90% of the Delegate Assembly approved a resolution supporting the, the week of action, curriculum development, activities for families, and the things that we normally do during Black White Lives Week of Action in February. Fantastic. Well, we congratulate you on that. We'll have to leave it there for now. But uh, Aixa Rodriguez of uh, Movement of Rank-and-File Educators and uh, ESL a teacher in the Bronx. Thank you so much for joining us Thank this evening. You. It was great. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. We'll be back with more of the uh, independent news hour in, in one moment after this uh, short break.
That was I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. You're listening to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Before we continue with our next segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBEI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to give to wbai.org. You can make a one-time donation or, better yet, sign up as a WBAI buddy for $10 per month or more and help keep WBAI and shows like this on the air. I'll share that information again at the end of the show. And now we turn to our second segment. We're really excited uh, to be joined by our next guest, uh, State Senator Jessica Ramos. Uh, uh, Senator Ramos has been at the forefront of uh, uh, people in Albany uh, demanding that uh, that the state government uh, uh, tax the rich uh, more to help address the crisis we're in. And now the state Senate has a super majority and uh, uh, many uh, new things seem possible. Uh, State Senator Ramos, uh, thank you for joining us on the uh, Independent News Hour this evening. Hey, John. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for having me again. You bet. It's always great to have you join us. So uh, just uh, following up on our last segment, uh, first of all, I wanted to get your reaction as both a working parent of two school-aged children and a state senator uh, to the latest round of school closings and how it was handled. You, uh, you certainly had uh, some fiery tweets uh, going out <laughs> uh, last week uh, demanding to know uh, you know, what the bleep was uh, going on. So uh, how do you see it at this point? You know, one of the most frustrating things, I think, for uh, for us parents, of course, is the scrambling and making, uh, you know, last-minute child care arrangements and figuring out how we can work from home if that wasn't the case. But really, uh, to me, the biggest frustration is the fact that we were clo- we are closing schools, but we're leaving everything else open. And... At a time where we have contract tracing data that's not being released, it's not being shared, um, we should be able to see where the actual vectors of infection are taking place. Um, We know that despite, of course, some cases in some schools, um, overwhelmingly schools are not a place where a a high rate of of, of infection happens. Um, But really, everybody should be paid by the government to stay home for a few weeks. We should have done this months ago, and we would have avoided all of this struggle, all of this uh, heartache. Um, So many of my neighbors have lost loved ones. Um, One of the neighborhoods I represent, Corona Queens, is at the top of the list of evictions right now. 1.5 million New Yorkers are going to go to sleep hungry tonight. They're is just so much chaos um, and and, and so much hardship that New Yorkers are experiencing right now that was very preventable. All we needed to do was do what we have been asking for for a long time, very much pre-pandemic. Tax the rich, make sure that those billionaires are paying their fair share in taxes, strengthen our uh, infrastructure, strengthen our social safety net, and let people stay home with a peace of mind until we have the virus under control. Um, this is this is this has been you know uh, a real. It's been done in other countries. It's been done in other in many countries. Yes, people are being paid actually a few thousand dollars 
to stay home um, because it really it really is proven has proven to be uh, one of the most effective ways to get um, you know the the uh, infections under control. So here we are with a governor who refuses to do the right thing. I hear he's a Democrat. I'm told. Um, but uh, we are yet to see him take any action. He's had nine months, a full pregnancy, um, <laughs> and he has not been able to give birth to any ideas about how we're going to generate revenue in this state. Um, he, I think a few months ago, mentioned briefly uh, legalizing marijuana, but we all know that that's a drop in the bucket. We're in a $16 billion deficit. There's Lots of people in New York who haven't seen a stimulus check or unemployment benefits because the cash economy is a very real thing in New York State. Um, And uh, legalizing marijuana would only generate $250 million a year. We have to do a lot, a lot more. And that's why I'm so happy we have a supermajority as of today, uh, officially. Um, And, uh, well, that comes with its its own uh, qualms of its own. But, right. I, um, I want to dive into that more in a moment. But first of all, uh, with that supermajority that you all have won, uh, what is this? What does it mean that uh, you all won it uh, with uh, vulnerable Democratic incumbents in the suburbs who survived uh, well-funded attacks by police unions and, and other um, wealthy individuals uh, who accused these incumbents of being soft on crime for supporting bail reform in 2019. What does it mean, you know, mean going forward that, uh, that these uh, Democratic incumbents survive that? Well, I think it's an incredible testament to the work that progressives have done. Um, and I'm sure this includes most, if not all of your listeners, uh, knocking on doors, phone banking, not just for, you know, protecting our Democratic majority, but certainly before that, in fighting for these progressive issues like bail reform, uh, like the Reproductive Health Act, like the DREAM Act, um, that, 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 you know, some more conservative New Yorkers might not be supportive of. But what we saw is that those who went to the polls um, and those, most importantly, who uh, requested and filled out and submitted their absentee ballots uh, were the voices that were heard. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy um, that we are able to prove that with our progressive politics, with a politics that actually cares about human beings, actually is a winning strategy. Who would have thunk it that caring about human beings was a winning strategy, right? Um, but but right. here we are, and, and this is why, you know, now that we're battle-tested, we need to push – and now that we have uh, an exact supermajority, meaning we only have 42 Democratic state senators out of the 63, you know what Cuomo's thinking. He's going to try and pick off, you know, one or more of the usual suspects on, on, on certain issues. We have to stay strong. We have to stay vigilant. We have to stay active and continue to put pressure uh, so that we can keep a united supermajority um, that that wins for working people. And, and and what's your sense of the cohesion within your caucus? I mean, you have people from here in the city, Long Island, uh, Hudson Valley, Buffalo, uh, all over the state. Uh, can, can you all hold no, it together? Look, we hold it together on many, many issues. On others, it's a little more difficult, right? We have 
uh, Democrats that are uh, a lot more uh, centrist uh, than, say, uh, Julia Salazar and myself. Um, but uh, but that just means that, you know, we can't be uh, we can't let the work get to us. We, we just have to you know roll up our sleeves and get it done. Uh, a lot of the new state senators won because of these so-called controversial uh, issues that we passed, right? Uh, the, the new state senators from Rochester, Sam Rabrook and James Cooney, um, were elected supporting and campaigning and supporting the New York Health Act and bail reform. These are issues that they talked about on their campaign trail. Um, so this is, you know, we, we have to we have to be strategic, um, and but we also have to keep in mind that yeah, that on, uh, on on some issues, you know, a few a few folks might not be able to be on board, and if we can do the work of making it easier for them, well then, well then that's a winning team. Right, and just for our listeners, uh, Samra Brook and uh, uh, Jeremy Cooney uh, are newly elected uh, state senators, I, I believe, from up in the Rochester area. Rochester. Mm-hmm. And of course, yeah. Rochester had a, a terrible police killing earlier this year that sparked uh, uh, some very passionate Black Lives Matter protests. And anyway, now they're in the state Senate, uh, uh, joining you and other caucus members. Um, also, oh, so excited! Right, uh, they certainly earned it. And uh, now the the state assembly, uh, which has 150 members, has had a Democratic supermajority for a number of years now. What um, we saw in 2019 when the state Senate started to move to the left the, for a while the, the it looked like the state assembly was kind of getting wobbly on uh, supporting some progressive uh, measures that it had you know previously uh, endorsed uh, it, it walked away from i believe a, a pieta terror tax on second homes of uh, you know wealthy uh, multimillionaires and uh, you know last uh, last summer uh, speaker carl heasty uh, poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into trying to prop up some of his incumbents who were facing uh, left-wing primary challenges, and all those incumbents were defeated. So, uh, and, and in some cases, defeated by members of the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, what, what's your sense uh, of what's going on in the assembly, and, and whether they're you know really willing to to work with you all in the Senate to to move a progressive uh, progressive legislation, you know, no matter what uh, Cuomo thinks. Well, I'm very happy to see uh, the state assembly uh, also become a lot more progressive, lots of new faces. I think it's something like 19 or 20 new assembly members. Um, so the dynamics are definitely di- are going to be different this year. Um, my district, I'm so proud to say, is sending two of our best neighbors, uh, Zoran Mamdani and Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas, uh, will both be joining the assembly in January. Um, and we're going to hit the ground running. We're going to be a team. We're going to deliver for working people. We're going to deliver uh, for uh, families uh, during this hard time. Um, and we, we're going to have to be smart, right? We're going to have to build coalitions. We're going to have to coalesce around the issues and, and, and figure out how it is that we can help. I have always argued that some of these issues should be nonpartisan. I know, you know, bipartisan, but really nonpartisan. To me, there, there shouldn't be a debate about whether, you know, we're able to help our small businesses with some rent relief, for example, um, or even tenants. Um, so here, clearly, the, the problem continues to be dark money in politics. We're going to continue to fight for campaign finance reform and 
for all sorts of changes to happen in our democratic process. Um, hopefully, uh, the environment will become that much easier now that uh, both houses are enjoying uh, more progressive voices. And we're going to continue to do that hard work. But I think uh, immediately, as soon as the session restarts, of course, um, and this is assuming that we don't go back, I'm, I'm one that I'm ready to go back. I'm, I, I, I'm hoping that we will return uh, in December. Um, we have to do the people's business. We have to get it done. We have to help uh, tenants who are on the verge of eviction. We have to help people who haven't received any economic relief. We have to tax billionaires. There's only two entities that have money, the federal government and the billionaires. No one else has money. And if the federal government is not going to send us any money anytime soon, then we have to do the right thing. Look, we know that the federal government eventually, especially once Biden becomes officially president, the federal government will end up sending some aid at some point. I doubt that it will be before the spring. But either way, it's not going to be enough money. And at that point, it will have been a year since the start of the pandemic. We have a lot of work to do. We, so, we see all of the holes in our safety nets exacerbated. We need to take care of our schools. The MTA is in trouble, in more trouble than it already was. Um, yeah. the new, the I wanted to new ask you about that. that. The MTA is uh, uh, proposing that, uh, that it might cut bus and subway service by 40% due to its budget crisis. Uh, how, how would that affect your constituents? My constituents would be devastated. I, look, right now, um, because service at night has been cut off, many of my neighbors who work in the who work in what's left of the hospitality ind- industry, um, what and, and uh, you know our health professionals um, and and you know those who work at night um, haven't been able to get around as easily. And I'm I'm just going to say it right here. I've always thought that it's a ploy to just get Uber more business um, because what happens when, when you know, you, you can't get to the subway? You end up having to take a cab because you still have to go back home. You still have to get to work. And um, that's a shame. That's a shame that we're, that we're nickel and diming uh, people in this way um, just to help a big uh, global corporation make a bigger profit when what we should be doing is investing in our infrastructure and investing in people instead of uh, insisting on austerity measures that are only digging us deeper in the hole. Right. And and the MTA, you talk about the overnight closures, is uh, estimated to be spending uh, $500 million per year now on overnight cleaning of the subway cars and, and that takes place during the the one to five a.m. closure of the subway system every night, and now more and more scientists are saying this is unnecessary because COVID nineteen is overwhelmingly spread by airborne respiratory particles. Uh, would you like to see this practice ended? Uh, I mean, some critics are calling it hygiene theater. Well, let me say that as as a subway rider. Um, I have been enjoying the fact that the subways are a lot cleaner. I would be lying if I said I didn't. However, uh, we should listen to the science. And if there are places where we can cut back, um, especially in a way that doesn't hurt those MTA workers, of course, uh, then we should do it. Um, I, 
I get that, you know, for optics, it seems like uh, the MTA is being very proactive and keeping, uh, you know, trains clean because, unfortunately, we lost so many TWU members, uh, right. you know, bus drivers and, 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 and train conductors um, and such. Uh, so I, I understand the, ca- the level of caution, and I think that that was the right thing to do. But as we learn more and more about the virus and how, uh, you know, how it's transmitted, um, you know, we should adjust accordingly, especially if uh, it amounts to cost-saving measures. Um, and, and, and hopefully we can put some money in, in the pockets of New Yorkers. Right. And, and, and when we think about the enormous deficit the MTA is facing and, and other uh, urgent needs that need to be met, uh, I mean, it seems like the amount of taxes that would need to be raised uh, could be substantial. And uh, I, I recently saw that the going back to the Democratic Socialists of Amer- America, you know, of course, we know they won you know, several uh, legislative seats in, in the past year and have a larger contingent going back to Albany in January. And they're now calling for a $50 billion in tax increases on the rich here in New York. Does that sound about right as a, as a number for you? Or would that be I'll, I'll, a, I'll be a non-starter? I haven't looked at the plan. I don't know what plan they're proposing. I can tell you about the bills that are being proposed now. Um, okay. I mean, it, $50 billion sounds like a great number. I'm not sure how it is that that number was arrived to. Um, but look. I mean, there are all sorts of proposals that my colleagues and I have made. Um, Robert Jackson has a bill to amend uh, the income tax bracket for some millionaires, not billionaires, but millionaires with an M, um, by a few percentage points just to raise enough money to cover foundation aid once and for all um, and mm. make sure that our schools are fully funded. You can do that one. You can do that one and the PETA terror tax. You can do that, the PETA terror tax, and put a sales tax on yachts and private planes. You can do all of those three things and tax billionaires' unrealized capital gains, which is my bill that would generate $23 billion. You know, there, there are just – there are so many ways, so many loopholes that the rich have taken advantage of so that they can pay uh, fewer uh, taxes than the rest of us. Um, that that really there's there's a lot of room for creativity here. Um, so I you know everybody always tells me, well, aren't you scared that the rich are going to leave New York? And look, I'm not going to miss them. I don't have dinner with them. I don't socialize with them. But I'll tell you who leaving does make me worried, and that's the middle class. We are seeing, even for years pre-pandemic. People fleeing New York because the cost of living is so high. We all know someone who had to go to New Jersey to buy a house, even Connecticut or Pennsylvania, in order to purchase home, a per- purchase a home and still commute back to New York City. And that shouldn't be. A New Yorker should be able to earn a living wage with just enough to save for a rainy day and towards owning a home someday. That that part of the American dream should still be true in New York. Um, and now that we're going through all of this, I'm, I'm really hoping that we've collectively learned a few lessons. Um, and as we embark on, uh, on a new uh, idea of how the state should run, about uh, how our, our, our taxes should be levied and, um, you know, how we're redesigning uh, all of these systems that have traditionally oppressed so many of us people of color, 
um, that that as we are electing more people of color and we are electing louder voices from working class communities, we're going to be the ones responsible for figuring this out. And we're going to need all, we're going to need your help. We're going to need every anyone who's listening to John the show right now. We're going to need your help. We're going to need you to keep your eyes peeled. You know, be ready to dial those phone numbers, whether it's the governor's office or somewhere else. But the agenda is going to be tight and the agenda is going to be relentless. Um, So it's 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 an incredible it's an incredible time, really. Um, And and I'm very thankful that you've given me this opportunity to let folks know, uh, because the real work is just beginning. Right, right. Well, uh, State Senator Jessica Ramos, we will certainly continue to follow this story in January uh, when you all uh, uh, come back into session and uh, and, and take on these uh, huge challenges. Uh, but for now, thank you for joining us this evening on the Independent News Hour. Yes, thank you for having me. And please, everyone, please continue to wear a mask. Be safe, socially distance and all that jazz. The virus is real. Let's keep each other safe. Absolutely. And, and, uh, you you have a wonderful uh, Thanksgiving holiday with your family. Thank you, John. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. Okay. All righty. Okay, that was uh, State Senator Jessica Ramos, uh, always bringing the fire for uh, progressive politics here in New York. Uh, we'll be back after a short break with our final guest, uh, Sean Petty, a public hospital nurse and a member of the New York State uh, Nurses Association, uh, who had a recent interview with The Independent, and he's a uh, very concerned about where New York is headed with this uh, pandemic and the second wave and our ability to uh, confront it. That's great. It starts with an earthquake, birds and snakes and airplanes. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane. Listen to yourself. Turn world to its own needs. Dummies serve your own needs. Beat it up and not speak.
That was It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I Feel Fine by R.E.M. You're listening to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Find us online at independent.org. Our uh, print edition is also out on the streets. Uh, It's been out for several weeks now, so not too many copies left, but we'll have another edition coming up in December. So now for our final segment, we are going to look at the growing public health challenge New York faces as COVID infections increase, and we appear destined for a second wave of the pandemic that could be fierce. So are we adequately prepared to to confront what's coming. We're going to talk here in a moment with Sean Petty, a public health nurse, a a nurse at a public hospital in the Bronx, also a member of the New York State Nurses Association. We recently ran an interview with Sean at independent.org called New York's officials have given up on eradicating this virus. We're really happy to have him join us this evening. Sean, thanks for coming on the Independent News Hour. Glad to be here. Sure. So uh, can you dive in? Because we, we have a, a few minutes here. And can you dive in right away into, the I guess, the main reasons that you're concerned uh, that New York City isn't fully prepared to uh, face this uh, crisis that appears to be coming? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, first, I think, you know, we can give uh, – uh, we can account for um, – what has transpired over the last five months since the first initial wave, you know, happened and, and was so devastating, you know, for all of us here in New York City in particular, um, you know, the, the, the hospital systems and, and the public health agencies have, you know, increased uh, PPE stockpiles. They have done more um, thorough uh, surge planning for hospital capacity. There have there's been more the development of more communication between hospitals and hospital systems in terms of transferring patients and and freeing up that capacity um, to handle increased um, uh, the second wave. Um, and you know we, what's gotten a lot of publicity is you know developing some of the testing and tracing capacity. Um, but I think um, the the thing to emphasize is that. Um, these developments, while a step forward, are really anemic and really still create a healthcare system that is far too precarious to be able to successfully say um, we are prepared. And I think, you know, it's possible that, you know, we, the best case scenario could happen and we won't, um, and we won't hit hospital capacity and we won't run out of PPE, but it's far from assured. And already we have breached the first um, hospital capacity question in, in uh, southern Staten Island, where they've just had to open up a, an ancillary facility um, that they used in March and April, uh, and that was announced yesterday. Um, so we're, we're still, um, you know, we're, we're receiving reports from facilities all around the city that PPE in some places is still being rationed. Nurses are still being asked in some places, not all, um, and not at my facility, are being asked to reuse their N95 masks. Um, Instead of relying on um, reusable PPE, in particular with respirators, with the masks that we wear, which are the the highest degree of protection and the most necessary protection, we could have been investing as a city, as a state, in reusable elastrometric respirators, 
which would um, avert the supply chain issues that we had in March and April. Um, the city and state have uh, uh, ultimately failed to do that. Um, insanely, you know, uh, Governor Cuomo continued to implement um, Medicaid cuts in the April budget, and de Blasio has implemented a billion dollars in cuts to the public sector workforce in their budgets, which um, add a degree of chaos and precarity to uh, the backbone of our response system. Uh, and um, you have uh, safety net hospitals in New Rochelle and in central Brooklyn, uh, in the One Brooklyn Health System, um, threatening to close, threatening to decrease acute, acute uh, care beds. Um, and then you have what I think is the signature issue that the state is unprepared for, which is going to be a huge difference between March and April and now, which is the staffing crisis. Um, in March and April, we fortunately, because we were the epicenter of the, the viral outbreak nationally, mm. we got we got a lot of reinforcements. Exactly. We got resources from the armed forces, from staffing agencies. We, our hospitals were flooded at a certain point. We were drowning. Um, uh, and, and it was a, uh, a hellish, um, unbelievable mess until those reinforcements got there. And once those staffing reinforcements got there, we were on cloud nine and we were, we felt, we felt like we could take this thing on. Those will not be forthcoming. We already know that. We know that, that they're being deployed already. The national, you know, the, the, the military resources are being deployed to North Dakota. Um, right. They're being deployed um, uh, already. The, the entire country is being hit at the exact same time. So we are not going to all the staffing agencies that we, we had nurses coming from Florida, coming from Texas, coming from everywhere into New York. Um, and those nurses are, are back home. Those nurses are elsewhere around the country. Those nurses, there won't be those nurses there. There won't be those doctors there. So that's where we're going to run into the most, uh, that's the most precarious situation. And that's, and Cuomo was asked, Governor Cuomo was asked directly about that at the press conference yesterday. And he had, he had no answer other than we hope it, we, we think it won't get that bad. Um, <laughs> and that's not an answer. Well, he pocketed an Emmy award yesterday, but that's uh um, oh my goodness! Yeah, I know. Uh, he's uh, also yeah. He also but as far as his uh, day job COVID. goes, uh, yeah, you sometimes wonder if he's uh, uh, got it got it all together. Um, so you mentioned well, actually, we we've just got about another minute or so here. I, I just want to mention something. I got a note from a, a, a longtime reader of our paper today who tried to uh, go get a, a COVID test, and he described it as I went to a free city clinic. At 8.30 a.m., um, there was probably 100 people in line. He went to another clinic and stood in line for an hour and a half and, and bailed out and then went to a city MD clinic a few blocks away, and uh, the line was spread out for two blocks. And uh, this was uh, somebody who lives in, uh, in Brooklyn. Um, it, it, is, the, is the city even prepared to offer uh, you know, fast and accessible testing for people as this thing um, uh, accelerates? Not that. Not to the extent that is necessary. Absolutely not. Um, you know, they've, they've really squandered the last five months to reinvent our entire approach towards healthcare. COVID was and is a world historic wake up call. And Cuomo and de Blasio keep hitting the snooze button. Um, our hmm. testing and tracing capacity 
still have completely failed to contain even the clusters that have happened um, since March and April, much less this massive, you know, entire wave of clusters that everybody predicted was going to happen. All of the projections uh, from all the major epidemiology institutes, University of Washington, Columbia University, all of them predicted it was basically going to be happening. They got it within a week. They we're even worse than their projections in terms of how quickly, um, you know, but, but we're, we're right. We're, they, we, they, we have um, about 15 seconds if you, if you just yeah. want to wrap so, up your thoughts. Yeah. Um, so the, the testing capacity is anemic and it's not prepared to the scale that it needs to be. Um, and unfortunately uh, we're going to still, we're in a position now though, that we are, um, we can fight them um, and organize just like we did to get PPE um, and right now the key battle is uh, we need to get them to tax the rich to provide the resources that we need. We, we can uh, be right. able to do that in this context. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Sean Petty, uh, nurse at the Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx, and uh, sounding the alarm about um, our public health uh, infrastructure right now. Thank you for joining us on the Independent News Hour. And uh, we'll have to leave it. I'm going to wrap up now. We're out of time. Many thanks to Amma Gagarian and Renee Feltz for their help with the show. Please remember to give generously to WBEI and help keep shows like this on the air. 516-620-3602. We'll be back same time next week. Five, ten, uh, oh, overflow, population, common food,